And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. What are we missing? Janice Stein is here. She's back. Coming right up. And hello there. Welcome to a new week here on the uh, bridge. It's our uh, Monday episode. And it's one of our regulars. Every month or so, we ask Janice Stein to come in and we talk about what are we missing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, I got a couple of comments about something that happened on Friday. It is still reverberating around Ottawa uh, today and may do for a couple of days yet. It was a remarkable moment, an error of massive proportions by the Speaker of the House of Commons. In fact, uh, Anthony Rhoda, who is the Speaker of the House of Commons, this perhaps is the biggest blunder he's ever made. In fact, it may be the biggest blunder any Speaker in the history of Canada's Parliament has ever made. Friday was a big day. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was in town and was speaking to the Canadian Parliament. But before he was asked to come up and speak, the speaker decided to recognize somebody in the audience. A Ukrainian-Canadian who had fought during the Second World War a man by the name of Yaroslav Hunka. He's 98 years old now. And he's from the Speaker's Riding. So the Speaker pointed to him in the gallery, said he was a Canadian hero, said he'd fought in the Second World War, said he was Ukrainian, and the House erupted in applause, gave him a standing ovation. That included Zelensky. Well, it turns out that, yes, Hunka did fight in the Second World War. But not quite the way it had been perceived in that moment in the House of Commons. It turns out that he fought as a volunteer with a Waffen-SS unit of Ukrainians. Well, this sense that here was the Canadian Parliament recognizing somebody who had supported the Nazis has enormous blowback consequences, not just for the Speaker, but for the Parliament of Canada. Questions being raised by the opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, about what did the Prime Minister know, when did he know it. Prime Minister's office saying they didn't know anything about this. They never knew anything like this was going to happen. Which seems a bit odd to some, because one assumes that everybody who is in that House of Commons area whether they were on the floor or in the speaker's gallery or in the visitor's gallery, that had some kind of security. 
especially special guests who were going to be introduced. But the prime minister's office said that they had, they had nothing to do with it. The speaker has apologized. Questions are being raised now about whether or not he can continue to be speaker after a blunder of this magnitude. And who's really responsible? How did it get to that moment? So we'll uh, watch that one unfold over the next little while. All right. Janice Stein. We did this uh, first as a one-off, this what are we missing idea more than a year ago now. And it was hugely popular. And so we brought it back and we brought it back. And we do it about once every four to six weeks. Because we do miss a lot. We focus on the big stories. And I'm not, the, the we, I'm talking about the collective we, the media in general. We focus on the big stories. Or we'll focus on a story for a day or two days and never kind of follow it up. Because the world moves fast in our 24-7 world. But Janice has uh, believed, and I agree with her, that we've got to touch base with a lot of these stories, the ones we miss, the ones we don't dwell on, that come at the expense of the focus we do place on the big stories. And it's the continuing problem for the news media and journalism over time. That's been one of the great benefits of having the printed word, whether it's in newspapers or magazines, they go deep, they go wide, while television and to some degree radio, um, you know, focus in on kind of the headlines of the day. Remember Walter Cronkite, the great CBS newscaster said many moons ago, <laughs> like 50 years ago, when he was being asked about why television is the dominant force and newspapers don't matter anymore, the printed word doesn't matter anymore, and today that printed word is, you know, is not just newspapers and magazines, it's also obviously digital online. But Cronkite said, television news is just the headlines. If you want to really know what's going on, you've got to go deep, you've got to go deeper, and you've got to read. Well, somebody who reads a lot is Janice Stein. And uh, if you didn't know already, let me remind you who Janice is. Uh, she's at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. In fact, she's one of the founders. She's a Canadian political scientist. I read from her bio. Canadian political scientist, international relations expert, Specialist in Middle East Area Studies, Negotiation Theory, Foreign Policy Decision-Making, and International Conflict Management. And in all those areas of expertise, she's called upon by a lot more than just universities. She's called upon by governments in different parts of the world, and uh, certainly the Canadian government, um, through past governments, whether they're being conservative or liberal, to help to help them, to advise them. And uh, here she is today, 
once again advising us and it's uh, it's great to have Janice with us uh, once again so let's uh, let's get to it let's get organized here and uh, our latest episode of what are we missing with Janice Stein Janice I want to start with India for for obvious reasons but also because often when we you know focus on one place in the world on a big story we tend not to you know take the time to understand the context behind the headlines of what's going on in that country so so tell us about India and what what you think we should know at this point I there's two pieces of context here Peter one the big piece that people might have missed is this is a five eyes story what are the five eyes the five eyes are our intelligence partners canada britain united kingdom the united states australia we're all in a kind of clubby in-group intelligence network where we share information because we trust each other this is not a canadian story this is a five eyes story where as much if not uh, more good intelligence came from our partners um and i don't think i'm giving away anything because our ambassador david cohen from the united states to the to canada uh, gave a little bit of an indiscreet interview the other day in which he revealed that the united states um, was instrumental in supplying this information to Canada. So when we think of this, there's been so much domestic politics around this story all week. What did the Prime Minister do? Should he have done it? Why did he, did he mishandle, didn't he? We have to see this um, as as a partner story, as well as a Canadian story. Um, so what does that mean to us? Yeah. Well, bluntly, I don't think the prime minister had any degree of freedom left when your closest intelligence partners supply this information, Peter. So doing nothing was not an option for the prime minister. I think that makes it very tough uh, on anybody of any political stripe because, of course, this is a, a, a domestic issue. It's made even tougher by the fact that this issue is an old, old issue in Canadian politics. It's been going on for 25 years. You would have covered it, I know, um, in your career at CBC. Uh, we have the world's largest Sikh diaspora, three quarters of a million. Uh, there have been allegations for years that these are active supporters of what was once a violent insurgency in the Punjab. It is no longer. It was brutally repressed. And you could say that support for an independent Sikh state, which is called Khalistan, is greater in Canada than it is in the Punjab right now. And I think that would be fair. But the Indians um, have been honest about this forever it just comes in waves but they've been honest about this forever and here again let's talk for a minute what you do if you are a rule of law state like we are you know the government of prime minister modi may not like having support for an insurgency headquartered in canada it may really bug him 
But before you can do anything, before you can arrest anybody, you have to have credible evidence, frankly. So there's a big difference between warnings, which there were a plenty from our intelligence agencies. This is not really a failure, contrary, again, to what a lot of people are saying. But you have to commit a crime, (laughs) whether it's drug trafficking or gang running. You have to commit a crime before the RCMP will arrest you in Canada. And since we've never declared um, support for Khalistan, the equivalent of a terrorist organization, which is what we'd have to do, there's no criminal activity that the RCMP has surfaced or would make an arrest. Now, that's a bind. Yeah. Um, the relationship clearly between Modi and Justin Trudeau uh, is not a good one. Um, and and we've, we've seen that visually and, and clearly we've seen it in the, the back and forth that have been going on in the last, the last week. Um, at the heart of it, is it this issue of the, uh, of the uh, Sikh diaspora inside Canada, and we, and we yeah. should make a point that just because you're Sikh and living in Canada doesn't mean you're uh, you're a terrorist or that you support terrorist activities or that you support ca- uh, the idea of uh, Khalistan. Um, but clearly, there are uh, you know significant number who do all of that. Yeah, but you know, Peter, again, let's put this one in context. Just because you're Irish in Canada doesn't mean that you supported the IRA. Right. It's it's very, very similar. And that's why we have to be so careful. And nobody in Canada uh, was ever arrested for supporting the IRA. And it's very, I mean, it, it, these are tough arguments. We're, uh, we have, we, Canada, for good and for ill, has the largest Iranian diaspora, Sikh diaspora. We can go on and on down the list. We have very large diasporas in this country. And um, that can make it very tough. Now, the relationship between Trudeau and Modi is frankly not good is a polite word here. Um, At the heart of it is this issue. There's no question. But, you know, let's go back to the prime minister before Trudeau, Harper. Um, Prime Minister Modi was on him, too, (laughs) about this. Um, and he, but he, the difference wasn't tone more than anything else. Uh, he said, Oh, we're going to do something about this. Oh, I, I understand your concern. I understand. We're going to do something about this. Came home, didn't really do anything about this, or we wouldn't have this issue right now. Again, nobody arrested ever. Um, <laughs> But the tone was more sympathetic to the issue. You know, the prime minister was um, in New York for the UN General Assembly and went to the editorial offices of the New York Times and was talking to the editorial staff. You know what a trap that is. You think you're off the record, but you're never off the record. Right. <laughs> and so the never. And so there's a piece this morning from one of the journalists, Nicholas Kristoff, who was in the room and said, well, the prime minister said, I want to see, I want to see some arrests. Well, well which, which arrests is he talking about? In, in, in India or in Canada on the part of those well, who are uh, you know, on the edge of the, uh, the activities against the Indian government from Canada? 
Yeah, well, you and I are reading the tea leaves, but if he wants to see some arrests, what does that tell me? That this murder um, was likely committed by people who promptly left the country. <laughs> and it's not possible for Canadians, for, for the RCMP or anybody else in Canada to arrest. So he wants to see some arrests. That suggests to me where these people are, right? The, the fact that the Americans have weighed in now, how much clout is yeah. that going to have on the, on the issues a, like that in terms of arrests or at least a real investigation? Because the clear signal from Modi last week was he's not doing anything. And that was, and that was probably a very popular move on his part internally. So plays, plays really well in Indian domestic politics. Really well. And he's got an election too. Everybody's having an election um, this year. So he did exactly what, uh, and he knew this was coming uh, because Kenny, you know, he was told repeatedly over the last six weeks that this was coming. Um, so he did exactly what you would expect any politician who's running for election to do. I don't think anything will happen. But Jake Sullivan stepped forward um, because truly, the you know, the, the United Kingdom did not uh, this week. And they have they have a, a smaller problem, but they have a problem. But Jake Sullivan really stepped forward when the heat was on the prime minister and every newspaper in the country was saying Canada's isolated, Canada's alone. Well, not really. When he steps out from behind the curtain and said, no, 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 this is an issue and we are talking to the government of India about it. So I think what that really means is he provided the cover that Justin Trudeau really needed badly. Do I expect him to bend Modi's arm halfway up his back and get an investigation? Probably not. So bigger picture, our relationship with India is not going to recover quickly. And, and, you know, Peter, we have 300,000 Canadian Indians. Um, now, if they're Indians, they can go home <laughs> uh, because they use their Indian passport. But if they've let it expire or there are any other issues, they're not able to travel now um, to India. And we've had to cut our consular staff in India. Um, and there are huge numbers of Indians who travel back and forth between the two countries. That's going to be chilled. Um, I don't think for a short time. It's a well, hard one to fix because the politics are vicious. It's a hard one to fix, it appears. And, and it, it's one that has enormous political consequences because uh, the Indian Canadian population, whether they be Hindu or Muslim or or Sikh, um, are dominant in more than a couple of ridings. You know, it's like eighteen or twenty ridings where they they can make the difference. Yep. So when you try to think about the domestic politics here. Clearly, um, the stance Trudeau takes will help him with the Sikh community. I imagine there's some members of the Indian community who are not Sikh who are really annoyed about this because they they had plans to travel home. That's all on hold now. You know, universities are very unhappy uh, because they get so many of their students from India. It's not actually universities who do it, by the way, Peter. It's colleges 
uh, and that's a whole separate subject about the bilateral relationship when Indian students are struggling. So, and, and third, we just put two and a half billion dollars into an Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and the Indo part of that Indo-Pacific strategy seems to be on pretty shaky legs right now. Um, so I expect that our government will do everything it can to contain, but they're really locked in. Let me go to one other one, which actually uh, people are not talking about on this piece. This whole story broke, Peter, because those same security services <laughs> leaked yeah. to the globe. This was being managed, right? It was being managed the way any professional group of people would manage it it was leaked now why um why you could make a case that the people inside our security services were frustrated that this prime minister was doing nothing about chinese election interference and just felt as on whistleblowers they had to move out and get this thing started that's not the case here Prime Minister was doing something. David Vigneault, the head of CSIS, went to Delhi to inform the Indian government to seek additional information. Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor, went to Delhi. I must say, um, leaking that story is not helpful. It serves no policy purpose. It put the prime minister in a tight spot for sure, but it put Canada in a tight spot. And we can't do anything about the leakers either. Well, I, you know, first of all, I, you know, we're assuming that the leakers were within the uh, security services and that may, may well be true. Um, but the security services are a, you know, I, I, there are a lot in the security services, not just CSIS, yep. right? There are a lot of people no. who can get this kind no. of information. Um, but it, and it, there was a lot a of pretty, chatter too. A lot, there of was chatter, a lot of chatter. But it's a yeah. pretty serious thing. I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble of leaking yeah. this kind of content, there are those who will make the argument that this borders on treason to do that. You know, this is, I'm one of them. This is pretty heavy stuff. I'm one of them. So uh, yep. I don't know what's going to happen. This is uh, two apparent leaks from inside uh, over the last, uh, well, this year. One on, the, you know, the stuff on China and now this. Um, all right. We've. Uh, you know, we, let, me, we, let me add one more comment just for uh, our listeners okay. on this one. Right. He, and, and this is part of, uh, of running a, a large organization. You know it from the CBC that when you start to go after leakers inside your own organization, you lose. <laughs> you lose because you unify those people and they ultimately have scads of information and they will find a way. So I think we in Canada, we have a problem now with no obvious way to address it. And the globe used code words, security officials, right? And that means us. That means from our services. Right. Well, you know, I, uh, this story is not going away anytime soon. Nope. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep following it. Meanwhile, 
we build this little segment as we're going to take a fast trip around the world, dropping in a lot of countries. So far, we've done one, uh, and we have a half a dozen or so to go. So let me take a, let me take our midway break and get it out of the way, and then we'll pile in on the other stuff. So back right after this. back peter mansford here with uh, the bridge monday episode um you're listening on sirius xm channel 167 canada talks or on your favorite podcast platform the guest today um janice stein is with us again on the segment that we have called what are we missing uh, we did a lot uh, dealt a lot on this uh, the indian story in the uh, the first half of this but we've got we've got quite a few places to drop in on uh, so let's get right to it Next on the list, um, we've seen a lot of horrendous pictures over the last few weeks from both Libya and Morocco, where two, you know, natural disasters have happened. In Morocco, there was the earthquake. In Libya, there was just this unbelievable flooding. Um, and, you know, natural disasters are natural disasters. They're going to come and go over time. But this is where your, uh, your, your governments... And the agencies that are in place are are supposed to be there to deliver uh, in in terms of aid, from rescue efforts, first of all, aid, rebuilding, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't appear in either of those two countries, Janice, that uh, governance has been that good. Uh, that's the story that we're missing, Peter, that the, you can't explain this entirely by natural disasters. This in both Morocco and Libya terrible government failure to manage the disaster once they happen. In Libya, and by the way, this, the, the tragedy of Libya starts when a multilateral coalition went in to protect civilians and broke that government. Uh, and ultimately, Libya was divided into two parts. This is in the east, um, and Field Marshal Hafter, who's one of Gaddafi's inheritors, um, is in charge in that part of the country. But, oh, by the way, the city where this happened, Derna, has been a historic site of resistance to him. So, no investment in the dams. Tons of warnings that these were not stable, that they were going to go. No investment in the dams came whatsoever. The, the tragedy happens. Nobody comes in to help. <laughs> and then uh, Hafter puts his son in charge, relief management. You know, Amartya Sen, the great Indian economist, said there are no famines that aren't results of politics. I would tell you that this kind of performance, the failure to do almost anything for a disaster of this magnitude, that's all politics all the way down. Just hop over to Morocco. <laughs> Terrible earthquake. Well, first of all, where? In the poor remote mountains where there's been almost no investment. But there's a king that is one of the best regarded in in North Africa and the Middle East, King Mohammed VI, spends most of his time in France, <laughs> wasn't in the country when it happened, um, has visited three times, that's all, um, no, no services available, no government people show up to provide any kind of emergency help. His personal worth estimated at $5 billion, and you have this kind of performance. So this is 
the abject failure of government to deliver even the most minimal level of service when, as you put it, natural disasters happen. All right, let's stay on the African continent and go to uh, Niger, which uh, seems to be catching that epidemic that's uh, impacting a number of places in Africa, um, and that's the coup epidemic. Yeah, that's the that's the coup epidemic. That's right. And, you know, there are contagion effects because one coup succeeds and dissenters, military dissenters say, oh, boy, that's doable. I can do that, too. And that's really what we've seen. But here's where the stories tie together, Peter. And it was very interesting. I think the president of Nigeria, who came out swinging against this coup in in Niger and encouraged, you know, the ECOWAS, the West African community to to respond with a threat of force to restore President Bazoum of of Niger, who's still, by the way, in prison uh, in his house and hasn't been released. But he he said, um, and just this week in New York, you know, he said, "Look, this is the this is not democracy versus autocracy, which is the way the story gets told in the West. These are military coups to overthrow democratically elected government." You know, President Bazoum is the son of the previous president. This family has been in power in Niger for thirty years or more. And, you know, finally, um, Tanubu, the, the president of Nigeria, came out and said, this is that same story we were talking about. It's a failure to meet the basic needs of Africans. And that's why you saw people in the streets in Niger supporting the coup. You know, it's not, to me, Peter, democracy versus autocracy. It's kleptocracy. <laughs> Where you have... Right? It's yeah. kleptocracy in Morocco. It's kleptocracy in in Niger. And that's what we're finally seeing. There's, there is a sense that it's enough. And that's why we're seeing it. You know, we're, we're haunted, uh, many of us, by the scenes from a few years ago, well, 10, 15 years ago, of uh, Darfur in, uh, in Western Sudan. Uh, we still remember what that was like, but now we're remembering it because we're seeing it seemingly again. Talk to us yeah. about that. Well, that, that's, you know, the, the last African story, that one just struck home with me for the same reason, that there was a terrible genocide um, in Darfur, Um which is in the western part of Sudan. We had a great story a few years ago when southern Sudan finally achieved its independence. People were so optimistic. Well, we have, again, a civil war in Sudan um, between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces. The Rapid Support Forces are backed by those same Arab militias. You remember the Janjaweed? Oh, yeah. Who inflicted, that's who. The Janjaweed were the ones who inflicted the the genocide. They are now, their, their heirs are now supporting the Rapid Support Forces. So in Darfur, again, 1.5 million people displaced 
<laughs> refugees pouring into southern Sudan, which is the among the poorest countries in the world and has no capacity uh, to absorb these refugees, pouring over the border and just a sense, I think, of absolute despair um, that there's any capacity in any international institution right now to do anything about this. Boy, there's a, there's like a theme running through all these stories that you're talking. Yes, there is. You know, bad governance yes. on the part of the country and sort of an unwillingness, it seems, on the part of governments outside these regions to do anything. Yeah, it, 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 the story is bad governance, um, failure to meet basic needs. Um, and if you don't do that, you get what you and I have just been talking about. But the second part of the story is great power politics are back. Um, that's what preoccupies Russia, China, the United States. So a continent like Africa, frankly, gets the shortest end of the stick. All right. Um, I don't know, uh, moving off the African continent, I, I don't know whether... What part governance plays in the story of Saudi Arabia, but the the country that was uh, a pariah to much of the world after the Khashoggi murder um, seems to have is, is back. Is a, it's the darling. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is which is you know I was making the comparison the other day that. Um, the Khashoggi situation is so, you know, clearly very different than the situation um, between uh, India and Canada. But nevertheless, there was a murder involved and the Saudis were, you know, uh, butchered this guy and at first denied any role in it and then basically had to admit that there was a role by rogue agents is the way they, they painted it. And you wonder whether that's, in some way, if there ever is an investigation uh, on the part of India into this, is we're going to end up with the same kind of solution. You know, rogue agents, it wasn't directly done by uh, the government. It, something got out of hand or what have you. But the, uh, focusing on Saudi Arabia. I suspect Arabia, you're right. <laughs> focus on Saudi Arabia for a moment. Uh, tell us, how have they managed this? Is it all because of oil? Is it all because of money? Is it all because of supporting golf tournaments and whatever else? <laughs> Well, much as you might like it to be golf, it's not golf, Peter. And it's, I don't think it's oil um, because the Saudis aren't market makers anymore in oil. I mean, we're in an energy transition and oil is still important, but it, it doesn't have the impact that it did 20 years ago. This is, again, um, part of a much bigger geopolitical game. And it's actually... Astonishingly enough, led by Joe Biden and his national security team, who want to lock Saudi Arabia in. Um, the Saudis, you know, he's played a very skilled game. Mohammed bin Salman, he's reached out to China. He's invited Chinese investment into Saudi Arabia. China got all those kudos. You and I talked about it for mediating between Iran and Saudi Arabia last time. Made the folks in the Biden team very, very uncomfortable. So they are they are spearheading these talks, which are astonishing, frankly. 
um, to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. They're astonishing that the Biden administration would pick this time with this government in Israel to do this. Uh, But they're also astonishing because Biden has had to walk all the way back from his description of Saudi Arabia as a pariah. And the price of this, it is to give the Saudis a civilian nuclear reactor. That's what they're talking about. Um, As well as some sort of defense or security pact, similar to what they have given to Israel. These are not small concessions that the Biden administration is being asked to give by the Saudis, but it is designed to make sure that the Chinese don't get um, uh, a foot deeply into this part of the world. It is designed to make sure that Saudi Arabia doesn't move too close to Iran, which is still a big worry in the Biden administration. A murder? What's a murder? Mm. Between friends, right? Yeah. Um, You mentioned Israel. Netanyahu was in Washington, was at the White House, was with Biden. Uh, What do we read into that? Wow. Again, um, this is a, a government that is so controversial at home that had the protests are still going on in the streets. The case of judicial, one version of it is it went before the Supreme Court, no ruling yet. You know, the visit with Netanyahu in, in New York and a promise of an invitation to the White House before the end of the year, if you want to deflate the protesters in the street who are doing it in the name of democracy, um, that's what you do, frankly. Uh, you could argue that Biden is doing this in order, first of all, to to move along the Saudi deal because the Saudis are asking for some what I would think are relatively modest concessions on the Palestinian issue, and that's going to break up Netanyahu's coalition. It's not going. It's not an easy. This is not the path forward. Is not easy here. And so he may have uh, he may have extended the olive branch, but the key asset for Netanyahu is, a, is a, you know, a visit with Biden. That's what he wanted. He wanted that photo op with Biden. He got it. Um, and that just strengthens his hand at home um, with the most writing government that Israel has ever had. So you have to ask yourself, Peter, where's the Biden presidency that said we're going to organize this world around democracy versus autocracy? Where's that? It was really hard this week to find a trace wherever you looked. It was really difficult. He's having enough trouble finding it in in his own country. Uh, yeah. These days, Biden. But tell me this just before we we move to our last country. Tell me this. Um, you know, Netanyahu has been a player for what forty years. I know. I, I, you know, I've interviewed him. I don't know how many times uh, during the past forty years um, at different levels. You know, he's you know, obviously been a prime minister off and on uh, a number of times, but he's also held major portfolios: defense, foreign affairs. Um, he's a survivor. How, how yeah. has he done that? 
absolutely. I mean, everything, he's had everything exactly. thrown at him, right? It's, it's not only political yeah. defeat, he's had charges thrown at him, threats of going to jail, the whole bit. And yet yeah. there he he's is. He's on trial for corruption. Right. right. He's on trial as we speak. He's on trial for corruption. So you have to give him his due. He's really politically skilled. Um, he's very, very skilled. And in probably the roughest political system anywhere in the world, this is the roughest. They play tougher there than anywhere else. Um, he's the toughest, but he's also the most skilled. And that's why he survived. Uh, I think there was some hope that this last crisis was going to do him in. Um, and in some ways it still might, but Biden, but the Biden administration, it's hard to over-exaggerate. It's throwing a lifeline, Peter. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden the Saudi deal, which to Israelis, who would have thought something they want? Um, even for that group that he's running with, which um, has no concern whatsoever, zero about either democracy or about Palestinians. No, they are a, um, a right-wing nationalist and fundamentalist group. That's who they are. Even for them, it's going to be tough to say no. Um, so he's in a much better position now because of what because of what's happened. And you say this guy, you know, he's nine lives. No. He's 64. <laughs> yeah, he sure does. It's um, amazing. Okay, last stop on our, uh, I was going to call it a world tour, but there's been yeah. so much of the world, obviously, that we've left out. But nevertheless, uh, for this segment, this time around, these are the countries we wanted to, to focus on. But last stop is North Korea. What do you want to say there? Well, there's another one with, with um you know, with survival skills, what surprised many of us, uh, he took his luxury train <laughs> across, uh, you know, all the way to the to the to, to the Siberian Peninsula in in Russia to meet Vladimir Putin. But he did it this time. Um, with a very strong bargaining hat, which he's never had before, Peter, um, because he is going to supply um, scarce, you know, artillery shells, ammunition um, to Vladimir Putin, who really needs it because this is turning the war is such a slog for him. But what's he going to get in return? <laughs> he's going to get much more advanced military equipment than he's ever had. So this is the first time in 30 years, and that's why I thought this one was worth a stop. This is the first time in 30 years that China or Russia is willing to give North Korea advanced military equipment. Any thought that these sanctions, and food, and food. Uh, so any thought that these sanctions might work against North Korea, done. We now um, have stripped away the veil. <laughs> we, North Korea is a nuclear power. Um, and it's hanging out, let's put it this way. <laughs> it's hanging out with a group of countries that are all desperate for their own reasons, all under sanction by the United States and the West. And I think at some point you have to ask yourself, um, there are a lot of costs to this strategy, frankly. 
sanctions have not worked almost anywhere. You know, when David Frum coined that phrase, axis of evil for, uh, for W, for George W. Bush. Um, yeah. That, that axis was what? North Korea, Iran. Iran and Iraq. And Iraq. So the axis of evil now dropped one partner in Iraq. First two are still there. And I guess you yeah. could you could say they've added Moscow and Beijing. Yeah, yeah. To the way they and they look at it. Yeah, I know. And those two are the one, the two that have survived are nuclear powers now, right? Threshold nuclear power, nuclear power. Um, you know, if you ask me what I worry about here in this, um, when you isolate. And you sanction, and there's no off-ramp for anybody. And you do this over time. Um, you drive people to collaborate. <laughs> and when you build, when you enable collaboration among the four we just talked about, that is not a safer world, Peter. No. No, it sure isn't. It sure isn't. Um. Now we head into an American election. God knows what that'll bring into that unsafe world. Okay. Um, this being, uh, you know, as it always is, it's a fascinating uh, tour to a number of places in the world, Janice, and only, uh, only you can do it the way you do it. So we really appreciate the time. And we'll talk to you again. Pleasure. We'll talk to you again uh, probably another month or so. Looking forward. Okay. Take care. Janice Stein with us with What Are We Missing? Um, another great edition. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have thoughts on any of this stuff, uh, don't be shy. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's where to write. Include your name and where you're writing from. Um, and we consider uh, all letters that come in. Some of them end up making the Your Turn edition on uh, Thursday along with the random ranter. Um, okay, before we wrap it up, one end bit for today. And it's, um, it, you know, it's once again, we're trying to to every once in a while, at least once a week, say something about climate change. Now, you probably expected this to come, but they've finally been made official now. The uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has been compiling records for 174 years. Well, the temperature records that they compile continue to topple. Last month was the planet's warmest August on record. The global surface temperature for the month was 2.25 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.25 degrees Celsius above the 20th century average. July and June were also the warmest on record globally, meaning the Northern Hemisphere saw its warmest summer on record and the Southern Hemisphere its warmest winter. Global surface sea temperatures hit a record high for the fifth month in a row. In the United States, August was the ninth warmest on record, but Florida, Louisiana, and Mississippi were especially hot, with all three states experiencing their warmest August ever. 
I'm reading this in the New York Times. Why does it matter? Well, climate-related disasters come with huge costs. We talked about the floods in Libya with Janice. But listen, August saw the formation of 19 named storms across the globe, eight of them reaching tropical cyclone strength. Six of these storms, including two hurricanes, happened in the Atlantic Ocean, more than usual for the region. The United States has had 23 separate weather and climate disasters that cost more than a billion dollars each in damages so far in 2023. The most ever in one year, even adjusted for inflation. These included the Category 3 Hurricane Idalia in Florida and the wildfires in Hawaii last month. The Maui wildfires were exasperated by winds from Hurricane Dora and are believed to have killed 97 people. Well... We haven't been protected from all this. We've seen the wildfires in different parts of the country. We've seen hurricane force winds and rain in uh, Atlantic Canada. I mean, it has been a year that has seen a lot of different things happening. I mean, listen, some of this stuff happens every year, but not to the degree it's happened this year. That's the point. And that's the argument on climate change, right? Things are changing and they're having an impact. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Tomorrow, Brian Stewart will be by. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff said. You saw Zelensky last week in both Washington and Ottawa with lines like, if you don't support us, we will lose this war. I'm not sure that he's ever been that blunt about it. But what's happening there? Is there a pullback? Is there a clear pullback in support? may not be in the words that are being spoken, but it may well be in the money and the arms that are being supplied. We'll talk about that with Brian tomorrow as he makes his regular Tuesday appearance. Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce. Thursday, as mentioned, it's your turn and the ranter. Friday, Good Talk with Bruce and Chantal. Okay, that's it for this week. (laughs) No, it's not this week. That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We will be back in 24 hours. 